Welcome to part two of our podcast on the films of Steven Spielberg. It's part two of episode two. Welcome to Two True Freaks. So before we go on to Amazing Stories, which is the next one, you had something to say about E.T. and the Academy Awards that year? Oh, yeah, I just wanted to point out that in 19 – this was another one of uh, of Spielberg's uh, Best Picture nominations. Up to this point, this was his – let me see, his third, according to the list that I have, uh, his third nomination. He was previously nominated for Close Encounters and Raiders. So this was 1982. E.T. was nominated for Best Picture. It was up against – um, also, Missing, not sure who's in that one, that sounds familiar, Tootsie, The Verdict, uh-huh. is that the one with Cher in it? No, I think it had Paul Newman in it. Okay, I don't remember that movie either. And, of course, the winner that year, can you guess? Uh, thank you, come again. <laughs> yes, it was... Gandhi, you gotta be fucking kidding me! Gandhi, Gandhi, you know what? What kills me about Gandhi, really? Now I haven't seen the movie, so maybe I, I have nothing. No ki- reason nothing to dog kills you it. about Gandhi because he was a pacifist. Oh, this is true. This is true. That's that's a good one. When I'm serious, though, you know what other award Gandhi won that year? No costume design. Costume design. They were just taking the costumes from the history. The robe and sandals and glasses. I mean, costume design. It just uh, gets on my nerves. Well, it was all historical costumes. They didn't have to come up with anything for Gandhi. They just had to dress them how they dress them how they dressed back then. Yeah, this is true. I mean, you know, not that E.T. would have won costume design. You know, I mean, he was a naked little alien dude. But, right. you know, still, I mean, you know, Gandhi wears a friggin' robe and sandals, you know, and it wins costume design. I just don't, I don't get it. Well, you know, Gandhi was, Gandhi was an important historical three-hour-plus movie with an intermission about an important historical topic. So that's what the, you know, that's what the Academy's going for. They want they want to vote something that's more than you know. ET was only about love and friendship and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, only about so that boring. Stuff. Oh man, I'm telling you. All right, moving on. Um, man, you said amazing stories. You're way ahead. That's uh, that's that's a couple years ahead. Our next one is uh, oh, Twilight movie. I'm sorry, I'm getting the like episodic <laughs> movies mixed up in my head. Yeah, so Twilight's- Twilight Twilight Zone the movie. Now this one had four different segments. It had the uh, I can't remember who directed the original, the first. Oh, that was uh, John Landis directed John Landis. the first segment. He with, did like uh, the opening, the opening little you know vignette with the hitchhiker, and then he did the first segment. Yep, with uh, with Vic Morrow who who died in the in the production. It was a big uh, big deal and a big trial and everything when that happened and then spielberg uh, was the second segment that was uh kick the can i think was the name of the yep yep you're right and then it went into the uh who'd you say it was joe dante was the third one joe dante yep the director of gremlins i forget what the name of that segment is and then it goes into uh nightmare at Something something thousand feet. I can't Some remember the tens of thousands of feet. <laughs> yeah, fifty thousand, sixty thousand. Which was a re- 
can't hear you. Got me? I got you now. Okay. That was about the uh, the only like two seconds I ever saw that third Rock from the Sun series when it was on was when they, they had a little inside joke about uh, uh, John Lithgow and William Shatner both commenting on how they had the same incident happen on a, on a plane ride. It was a little aside to uh, to that Twilight Zone segment. I, I thought John Lithgow was a uh, an appropriate, you know, replacement for for William Shatner as far yeah. as you know, crazed, just pushing the edges of overacting, but definitely chewing the scenery. I think that know? must have been the first thing I ever saw him in because everything else I've ever seen him in. I judge by that performance in that movie. Well, the first movie I saw him in, of all things, was um, The World According to Garp. Oh, God. As he was in there, and he played, and he played a woman. Transvestite, was it? Oh, was he a woman? Well, I think he was, I think he was in, I think he'd had surgery, so he was a sex change. <laughs> so that was his, like, that was his big breakthrough role. That was what, I, I'm sure he had, like, minor roles before that, but that was his big that brought him to prominence and then I and then I remember seeing him in Buckaroo Banzai yeah I was just gonna mention that I still haven't seen that movie all the way through so anyway Spielberg in uh, in Twilight Zone the movie this this was not my favorite segment of that movie but it's not no. my least favorite my least favorite would, would be the first segment with uh, with uh, J- uh, Vic Morrow which I, it just doesn't work for me and and strangely having heard the way the the segment was you know because they changed it after he died you know they didn't they didn't fin- right. finish filming everything and it was supposed to have a much more positive story of redemption and everything and you know he died during the filming so they changed it to where you know he's basically condemned at the end and and sent off on the on the the death train and I don't think it really worked one way or the other. It just wasn't a story that that particularly appealed to me. But the Spielberg one is, uh, you know, it's good. I don't think there's anything wrong with it, and it's very Spielberg Spielberg dish. It, it just, uh, I don't know. It just compared to the to the other two segments that I like better. You know, the the last two segments, it, it just doesn't hold up to them i guess but it, it's not bad it's it's not bad as a matter of fact I, I watch that and i get a real uh cocoon vibe off of it you know because it's it's right. very very similar type of story same theme yeah the, the the thing about it is is it had a lot going for me from the get-go because it's got my favorite actor one of my favorite actors of all time is uh scatman crothers oh, yeah and and he's a, a, in that and he's just he's always great no matter what he just has that great voice and great mannerisms but this was you see this was i think sort of a turning point in spielberg land where spielberg sort of became self-aware of his spielbergness and his you know he was everybody was saying oh, he has such a great touch with children and stuff like this so this sort of he was playing. It came out very syrupy, you know. It was, it was the most sugary aspects of all his style put together into right. one thing. You know, the music was very sunny and bright, and even, even the depressing, crappy rest. You know, depressing rest home that they lived in was still kind of 
nice and white bread America, picket fancy, you know. Right. And uh, it, I think this was the beginning, and like when Amazing Stories started and stuff like that. That's when Spielberg. You would see some stuff that's like, this is Steven Spielberg, and it sort of created. Now you see it a lot in commercials. Now they use the sweeping John Williams type music and uh, right. and and little kids or you know just sort of hometown life things. And it's and it's I don't think people think about it as being particularly Steven Spielbergian, but it's it's become so much ingrained in what we watch. And this was sort of the point where this was the first thing he did. That was very just like self-aware Steven Spielberg. Positive, you know, it has a positive message. It doesn't, it, no edge at all. There's no edge to this at all. <laughs> you know, there's not, there's no grit to it at what's, all. Because what's funny to me is I think you could take that segment, the Spielberg segment of that movie, right out and put yep. the, the the lead and the and the and the. Uh, and titles of amazing stories on it, and it would it would work just fine on that show. Sure. I, I oh, think sure. It, it does. It feels like an episode of Amazing Stories, you know, rather than Twilight Zone, which you know, to my recollection, you know, were there any like sweet episodes of the Twilight Zone? I thought they all pretty oh, much sure. were sinister. There were, there were a few, I'm sure. I you know, I, but I can't I can't like cite one off the top of my head yeah. but if they weren't the they weren't a lot the of them classics you know that everybody remembers but yeah the the stuff that everybody remembers always has a bit of a bite to it you know even the the joe dante one which is you know that one's sort of light and but it's got a very it's got a very evil edge to it it really brings out the evilness of little kids oh yes you know whereas 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 spielberg was playing on the pure sweetness of childhood and well even the way that one ends you know with with them driving off um you know they drive off and the the flowers are coming up behind them and the music is very positive even though that's supposed to be very bright and cheery and all that i always kind of felt the sinister aspect of that too you know that, that sure He's still using his powers, you know, he's still doing, you know, sinister, you know, or something that could be sinister with his power. I don't know, I, I just always got kind of a funky vibe from that one, too. But. I, I always question the woman's motivation for taking him under her wing, you know. That, yeah, that always that's true too. had a little weirdness to it, too. But uh, I think it's interesting to note as well that, uh, at least according to the list I've got here, that this was the first... Uh, theatrical uh, Spielberg direction that was not scored by John Williams. Uh, the Twilight Zone, the movie, was actually scored by uh, by Jerry Goldsmith. And it's funny what you said about you know the the lightness of of the music in the the part with Spielberg. It, it is. It's very very light. It's, uh, it's which very is kind John Williams like. Yeah, it is. It's very John. It's almost like uh, like uh, Goldsmith channeling Williams. It's it's kind of an odd mix well because he was trying to craft it towards steven spielberg and by that point steven spielberg and john williams are you know so tied together as far as music and i think 
Yeah, they've done six. Did John Williams do 1941? Did he do the music for 1941? So so basically every movie before that had been John Williams. Yeah. All right, moving along. uh, You had a comment about uh, something else in 1983 that uh, that Spielberg might have had a hand in, you know, in in an alternate reality. Oh, my God. If if it were only true, but I I guess supposedly Steven Spielberg was supposed to um, direct Return of the Jedi. That would have been awesome. Uh, I mean, there was some sort of union or, you know, so, some sort of union problem with him doing And you'd think with George Lucas and Steven Spielberg being who they are, you know, coming off of the first two Star Wars movies, plus American Graffiti, plus Raiders, plus you know Raiders of Lost Ark, E.T., Close Encounters, you know, really they should have been able. Who, who, who was thinking when they decided to to try to like stand in the way of that? That that would have been money for everybody, you know. You know, besides the artistic beauty of what that would have been, you know, it would have been, it, it, it was a no-lose situation for everybody involved in that. I would love to know so, what, what the exact story with that was, you know, what, yeah, what exactly too. happened, you know, that, that that didn't happen. And and even beyond that, you know, years later, you know, here, uh, Lucas makes another three Star Wars movies, and especially after the reception that that episode one got, why you know, why did Spielberg never step in and direct you know episode two or episode three? That- well, you know the funny thing is he did. He was doing a lot of he was doing some second unit direction, I believe, in at least episode three. Oh wow! I don't know about episode two, but there's there's whole sequences in episode three that were that were directed by Spielberg. Oh wow! No, I didn't. Now they, you know, they weren't necessarily edited by him, or, or even you know, storyboarded by him. Is they he were probably storyboarded by Lucas? But he was doing second unit and some first unit stuff on on that movie. Is he credited? I don't think so. Wow. I think he was just doing it. Why wouldn't you do it? <laughs> I would do it for free. <laughs> you know, I imagine Steven Spielberg would do it for free. Although he probably did. They, they, they probably worked out some sort of deal. I do wonder yeah. what uh, what Spielberg's Return of the Jedi could have been, though. I, I mean, I wonder if he would have been able to. I mean, because I don't think Return of the Jedi is a bad movie. I mean, it's definitely the weakest of the original trilogy. But that's not to say, you know, that it's that it's a bad movie or anything. I but I, I wonder what his would have been. I wonder if it would have been darker. Or, or you know, God forbid. I wonder if it would have been even lighter. You know, if he it would have probably been a little of both. I mean, well, the the dark parts. You know, the the thing about Return of the Jedi is the dark parts are pretty are pretty dark. You know, right. But um, yeah. If 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 Spielberg would have directed it, I think it just would have. I think it would have. Um, I think the bottom line, the acting would have been. A little, a little better. Now, according to like Carrie Fisher's autobiographical books and stuff, they were all doing like I think everybody but Harrison Ford were all doing a lot of drugs, doing a lot of coke and stuff like that. So they weren't at, 
exactly at the top of their game a lot of the time. Right. So that that could that probably contributed to it. And there's a few there's a few scenes in there where where you can sort of tell that they're just not as you know, they're not quite there, you know, it wasn't it wasn't quite there. But I I think it was basically the director was weak. I think there 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 were a lot of problems with that movie. It seemed kind of rushed. It didn't have the the style of the other movies. It almost had a made for TV look to it. Parts of it, but the big yeah, set pieces it, were yeah. really great. And the and you know the big set pieces were probably all worked out by George Lucas. And, What's um, strange to me is that you know it's it's the last one of the original trilogy. Several new effects techniques were created for that movie, and it's wonky because you've yeah. got you've got some parts of the movie with the new technology that's absolutely amazing, and and I think holds up very well today. And then you've got other parts of the movie that are completely at the other end of the horrible spectrum. Horrible rear projections. The, yeah, and... the effects look just fucking horrible. That yeah. part. Where uh, where Han and Lando talk to each other in front of that really shitty effect of the Falcon in the hangar bay, right before Han leaves on the shuttle and all that. Yeah, that yeah. effect drives me nuts every time I see them. It looks like shit. And why they didn't fix it in the special edition is beyond me. There's that one, and there's the effects in the uh, speeder bike sequence. There's a part where. Uh, I think it's the part where Luke and the speeder bike guy are locked together. Yep. And you can see the support. And you can see they, like, fucking magic markered it out or something. But you can still see it plain as day. Yeah. This, the support rod. And again, in the special edition, you know, they go in and they add in banthas and shit. But why don't they go in and, like, take out these things that are glaring friggin' mistakes in the movie? And it would be easy as pie for them to do that. You see, I, I think if Spielberg had directed it, I don't think it, it would have it would have helped avoid those technical problems. I think those would have all been approached like in the same way. It, I bet you it would have been more of like if if Spielberg was the director, it would end up being more of a collaborative production, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you know. Right. Except with probably with Lucas, it would have his fingers in it a lot more. And they'd probably work out all the storyboards themselves, but when it comes right down to the nitty-gritty of directing actors, that's where Lucas, you know, that's why he would have other. One of the reasons, I guess, he would have other directors direct the movies, because boy, he's just not—he's just not good with that. He doesn't know how to get an a performance out of somebody. And Spielberg, I mean, if he had just brought Spielberg in. For um, coaching Jake Lloyd <laughs> in Episode One, yeah. they would have made it a much better movie because Spielberg knows how to how to get a kid to pretend Absolutely. that he's that he's in the reality of where he is, rather than like rifling off his. Are you an angel <laughs> from the planet Yago? I guess. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, that kid sucks. Well, and and you saw in like the in in the in the behind the scenes when they're picking out the kids, they got that one little kid who's a little bigger than Jake Lloyd, and he looks just like Mark Hamill, and he's just a natural actor. And Lucas is like, ah, I don't know, he's a little old, and 
uh, I don't know, Jake Lloyd, we could probably get, uh, and it's just like, what, what, you know, what are you thinking? As somebody who's had to do artistic things where you're choosing someone to do something and something, it was so, the choice was so obvious, and sometimes you go against the obvious choice, but man, I wouldn't have done it there. <laughs> and, you know, uh, I mean, whatever, I mean, Jake Lloyd was, uh, he was, he was in that Arnold Schwarzenegger movie with the, where they after the action figure, he was like Arnold Schwarzenegger's son, and that oh, was his. Oh yeah, I know which one you. Oh, I didn't think he'd ever made anything else. I, uh, he had be banned from Hollywood at this point. It, it, I, well, I haven't seen him doing much of anything else <laughs> since then. Well, moving right along. Yeah, I, I let's 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 a... jettison that real quick before we we <laughs> end up somewhere completely different. What what do I we got next? We might get a, well, I think we might get a feel for what Spielberg's uh, Return of the Jedi could, could have been like by looking at the next movie, which was a uh, Spielberg and Lucas collaboration, which was uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, 1984. Oh, yeah, the prequel. Now, uh, it, it came as something of a shock to me, you know, when the new movie was coming out, you know, there was a lot of press about the new movie and, and looking back at the original trilogy, a number of, uh, of podcasts that I listened to, you know, did retrospectives about the trilogy and all. And I was really surprised to hear people just dog the hell out of this movie because, uh, I mean, I, I love uh, Temple of Doom. I, I mean, I don't have any problems with it. And I no. was really shocked to hear that, that people don't seem to like this now granted you know trying to trying to pick your like your least favorite of you know these beloved movie series you know like indiana jones or star wars or star trek it, it's almost like trying to like you know like pick like you know Which your favorite your child or something. <laughs> yeah exactly you know and, and it is it's it's tough but i mean if i had to pick my least favorite it would it would be temple of doom but that's not because I, I think it's bad or that I think that there's anything wrong with it. Um, I mean, I really enjoy this movie. I, I think it's got, you know, it's got a hell of a lot of action. I think the story's pretty good. Although I, I think probably the biggest problem with it, for, I guess, for other people is, is just, you know, the story is not maybe as familiar or it doesn't feel as as important somehow as maybe the other two movies but right. but even there it, it should feel as important because again it, it, it all comes down to you know the the plan is world domination you know using these these stones and I, I right. don't know if maybe that just doesn't come across in the movie maybe you know maybe the you know because that it's not you're not beat over the head with it like you are you know, in Raiders, it's made very clear, you know, if the Nazis get the Ark, you know, the, then, you know, mankind's going to be doomed. Right, and, you know, they'll win the war. And... and it's the same kind of thing in, uh, you know, in The Last Crusade. You know, if, if the Nazis get the Grail, you know, they're, they're going to march all over the face of the earth. And I don't think that that, that threat is as... You know, it wasn't it, a threat. It wasn't a threat to, like, America <laughs> at all. It was uh, a yeah, threat. You know it was That's a threat to a village in in you know with, full of little, it was little kids. It was so it was it was a bunch of furriners. That's a good point. That's so, a good point. So there was a you know, it, and it was a sort of localized localized problem. But um, 
I think it, it just it just had a different it had a different feel than Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I think people were not. It had all the all the Indiana Jones movies have a different feel to them. You know, they're all like. sort of yeah, they're just sort of different aspects of the serial adventure. You know, and Raiders of the Lost Ark was definitely the most gritty. Uh, and it was the introduction, and you know nobody knew if it was going to be a series of movies at that time, so it was played a little more straight. The character was developed in that movie, so a right. lot of the other movies are sort of playing on the you know the character that you're familiar with. But this one has this one has like some of the darkest moments in it. Absolutely, but it's all surrounded by some of the lightest, and it's very. Very, you know, a lot of a lot of comical gags and a lot of gross out. It's it's almost like the gross out Indiana Jones. There's a lot. The first one was very violent and gritty, but this one's very violent in a cartoony way. But you know, chilled monkey brains and bugs and <laughs> and lots and lots of reaching into bugs and having to walk on tons of bugs and crawly things and uh, hearts coming out of chests and people getting lowered into lava and burning up. I think one of the things I really like about this movie, and, and it really came to me not long ago. You know, it wasn't something that, that I, I thought about consciously, you know, back in 1984 or even really in the last few years. It really just came to me as this new one was coming out and, you know, there were, there were all the reflections back on this trilogy that, to me, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom really has kind of a Batman and Robin feel to it. Because, you know, there's sure. been a lot of complaints about, you know, the child sidekick. But if you look back at, you know, comics and things like that back in that, that era, you know, especially the comic books, you know, everybody was getting a, a kid's sidekick. You know, Batman got Robin and yeah. Captain America got Bucky and... You know, and that carried over a little bit into some of the movie serials, you know. And and I wonder if that was kind of what he was going for was, yeah. you know, taking the lone quote superhero. Not that Indiana Jones is a superhero, but he's an action well, he hero. Yeah, he's an action hero. You know, and and giving him, you know, the the the, the typical kid sidekick. You know, like that. You know, that's what was done in in the '30s. You know, all some, the somebody the he's got to protect, but who's also can take care of themselves. Right. Because I mean, there's a couple think. of sequences in that movie where Short Round, you know, he kicks some ass, and he, yeah. he in those parts he reminds me of a Robin, you know, or yeah. or a Bucky, you know, and I, I kind of wonder if maybe that's what uh, what they were going for, you know, was that, you know, that that kid, you know, that junior partner, you know, rather than just a you know a little kid that was tagging along, you know, more of a kid sidekick or a, or a junior partner kind of thing, and I think that works very well. I liked Short Round. And I was yeah, disappointed and, that he didn't make you know some sort of a cameo appearance in in this latest movie. I, I really was sad by that. He might be really weird looking now. You know, a lot of those child <laughs> actors grow up looking kind of strange, and they were just like, "Nah, come on." He's like, he weighs three hundred pounds, and you know, uh, he's yeah, bald, balding, be. or something. That could be. They, we could we could CG a few pounds off him, but you know, nothing nothing like that. Who what, knows? What are some of your uh, your favorite sequences of uh, of Temple of Doom? Oh wow! Um, I I I I really like the begin. I would like the way it begins. Mm -hmm. 
because it's completely different than Raiders. It, it's it's sort of uh, it, it starts out as a musical, but I think um, what would be my favorite part of that? My favorite part would probably be when they sit down to dinner and they have to eat the incredibly gross dinner. <laughs> it's just a beautifully directed sequence. It's really funny, and it just. You know, it, it, it gives every character, every character gets to react in their character way. You know, Indiana Jones is pretty nonplussed through it. And, you know, and, um, oh, what's, what's the woman's name? Uh, oh, uh, Kate, uh, Capshaw. Kate, Kate Capshaw gets to, you know, be all grossed out. And I think, you see, a lot of people were annoyed by her, but I think she was supposed to be annoyed. Yeah, yeah, she was. I think, I think she was supposed to be sort of the third wheel with him and the kid, and he's younger in this one, and it's the younger Indiana Jones, and he doesn't care about the broads as much, you know? Although when he gets all cleaned up and gets into a suit, then he can start sort of working her over. Then he decides to work her over, but before that, she's just an annoyance, and and you can tell you can tell short rounds a little little jealous and a little bit you know is is a lot more annoyed than India's buyer, but that's sort I of a it, good I dynamic. Think it actually works. Yeah, I think it works well between the two of them because he, to me, it doesn't seem like they really had very good chemistry between the. You know, they didn't come off believable as as really being all that hot for each other. Right. And I think it works that that I never bought it, you know, because to me, Indy didn't seem like he was really interested in her. He seemed like, man, eh, you know, I'd give her a toss, you know, that, you know, if, if you know, since she's the only woman around. Yeah, that's right. It's, but, you know, we're, you know, but he wasn't really interested in her, you know, long term. And, and that definitely came across because they don't seem to me like they really fit. Well, the only, the, uh, Karen Allen was the only character in the Indiana Jones movies now that the last one has come out the latest one or whatever but um you know in um in the last crusade the you know the love interest between between him and uh, the german woman was over pretty quickly you know it was there yeah. and then it was gone and then there was still you know there was still a chance that she was going to redeem herself but but that's we'll get to that when we get to that movie <laughs> and all right uh do we need to take a break at this point? Yeah, I think we should take a little 30 seconds and uh, come back with the, the next movie, which is uh, Amazing Stories. Cool. The TV series. You are listening to the Two True Freaks podcast. Distracting you with nerdy minutia so you can more comfortably pass the time until the flesh-eating zombies claim the earth. Production of Demanso Corporal Have you tried lowering the landing gear yet? No indication showing, sir. I'm Father McKay. Is there anything I can do for you, sir? Captain, we got a problem. Huh? It's Jonathan, sir. He's trapped in the belly turret. I don't think we can get him out. Yeah, I just, just wanted to, to point something out. Um, my, my personal favorite, I actually know my personal favorite moment of all of, uh, of Temple of Doom was the part where, uh, where Indy's fighting the big guy on the conveyor belt. Oh, and, yeah, that is a great scene. Well, you know, the, the music's really going. And, you know, I think really, you know, 
Williams was really doing one of his one of his best musical pieces of the whole movie in that segment. And there's the part where uh, where the guy gets Indy down on the belt and he's you know stomping on his chest and holding him down and you know the 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 voodoo doll gets a knife stuck in it and oh, it's just right. laying there while, while short round in the Maharaja fight. And there's a moment where you know Indy's head's headed down into that rock crusher. And he's screaming. He's doing this great, like, Aah! Yeah, he's scream. doing that face. Going. And for just a moment, you know, you can forget that this is a prequel. I mean, he's not going to die. Right. You know? But there's just that moment where you're like, oh, shit. You know? I mean, it really looks like he's going into I mean, it's a great moment. You know? And, and of course, you know, the... The, the knife gets pulled out of the voodoo doll, and then he comes up all heroic, and he beats the hell out of the big guy. But, I mean, there's just that moment where his head's headed into that crusher. It's just like, it, it's a perfect moment, you know? I completely I, I, I forgot love, about that part. I love that that part of that movie. That's that's my favorite part of of, uh, of Temple of Doom. One of my favorite Indiana Jones movie, movies of, uh, of all four movies, really. But, well, uh, well, we probably saw that in the theater together like at least three or four times. Yeah, I, would I imagine. think so. Yeah, I love that. I really like that movie a lot. I'm, I'm surprised that other people kind of, kind of dog it out. <laughs> I also Moving remember. Along. Well, before we move along, <laughs> okay. I also remember that you. I wonder if you do. You still remember? You memorized all the lyrics to "Anything Goes." Oh yeah, and I, I'm not even sure what le- was it Chinese or Japanese? Probably Chinese, wasn't it? I can't remember. I think it must have been Chinese. Yeah, because they're in uh, they're in Hong Kong, aren't they? I think they're in Hong Kong in I the beginning right. of the movie. And uh, yeah, I did just by by listening to the soundtrack so many times. I was at, I actually could like recite the lyrics. You know, I didn't know what the hell she was saying. But I knew it just from listening to the soundtrack, like over and over again. Just like Lopty oh. Neck. Yep, I knew that one by heart too. <laughs> a classic. Man. Now you know, if only this geek knowledge actually applied to something useful. You know, if I could like win a contest or go on Jeopardy, you know, and answer, you know, anything Lopty goes. Neck. And- <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll take Lopty Neck for a thousand dollars. Now, to my knowledge, the only, well, I was going to say to my knowledge, the only episode he personally directed was, uh, oh shit, now I'm not going to be able to think of the name of it, but you, you said you thought he directed another episode, the episode about the train that comes to the yes. house, something like that? To, to pick up Grandpa, to take Grandpa to the afterlife. Yeah, I remember sure. that episode, but uh, but I can't remember if he directed that one. I'm going to take your word for it because I'm not that familiar with Amazing Stories. the The only episode I'm familiar with is is the one that I know he directed. That was uh, it was called The Mission. That was the name of it. The Mission. It had uh, uh, Kevin Costner was in it. I believe Keith Sutherland was in it too. Or Keith, is it Keither or Kiefer? I can't. I'm I think it's sure Kiefer. Kiefer Sutherland. I think he was in that too, if I remember right, and there might might have been some other stars or you know future stars in there too. I'm not sure, but I like that one. It was uh, I don't remember that one. Well, I, I didn't remember it very well. I remember how it ended. 
but I couldn't remember the episode very well, but I've had the soundtrack for a long time, the the original Amazing Stories album that they put out. Now, they've since put out like this anthology. It's like, I think it's four discs. But originally, there was only one soundtrack that was out there, and it had about half of the album was John Williams' score to the episode called The Mission. And I really, really liked the music to it. So... I made a point to track down that episode and watch it again, just so I'd know, you know, what the music went to, and watched it, and I was really blown away. I mean, it's it's really really good, but it's very very Spielbergy. I mean, it it's you yes. know just like that segment of the Twilight Zone that we were talking about. Uh-huh. I mean, this one again is, you know, it, it it's got his fingerprints all over it. You know, sure. it's, it's it's got a lot of, I hate to say cheese, but you know, it's got a lot of just. You can say cheese. You know, it, it's got some cheese, and it's it's got some you know sticky sweetness to it. But it, it's a good story. I mean, it was it was a good episode. I mean, you know, basically the the premise of it is these guys. You know, they're on a bombing mission. You know, this is World War II. They're on this bombing mission. They shoot down an enemy plane, and when the plane explodes, a portion of the plane smashes into their plane, and it destroys their landing gear. And it gets jammed oh, yeah. in such a place that the the gunner on the underside uh-huh. of the airplane is jammed, and he can't get out. You know, they only have. I remember so that I saw that one. And they're you know they're eventually going to have to land, and when they land, it's going to kill the guy who's trapped in the in the bubble on the, on the underside of the plane. You know, he's in the gunner station on the underside. Yeah. Of the and so the whole episode is out. You know. If, you know, the first part of it's about them trying to get him out, and then eventually they come to the realization they can't get the guy out. So then the rest of it is about that you know both the guy who's going to die and the rest of the the people on the plane coming to terms with the fact of you know he's going to die, they're going to kill him. You know, I mean, and and it, it's really good. It's very powerful, and I won't give away how it ends to anybody who hasn't seen it because it, it really is worth watching. Um, I do remember when I saw it originally as a kid, I thought the ending was really stupid. But then having seen it again recently, you know, understanding that this is an episode of Amazing Stories, it's actually kind of cool. But, you know, you, you get so caught up in the World War II feel of it and the yep. realism of it that when you see the ending, it's very easy to go, well, that was really dumb because you're forgetting that this is an episode of Amazing Stories, you know. But yeah. It, it is really good. I mean, it, I, I really enjoyed watching it again after all these years. I think it held up really well. And uh, but like I said, it's definitely, you know, it's got that that Spielberg uh, fingerprint all over it. I mean, it you 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 can see it's him from a mile away. You know, well, not that that's a know, bad thing, but it's it's done in that kind of cheesier Spielberg style, not necessarily the really good Spielberg style. I'm starting to think that I know what the third episode was, and I think it was—I think it was called the Family Dog. Oh, did he and direct it? Was animated, and it was—it yeah, was an animation. I've never seen it. I've seen parts of it, but I heard it was really good. And the parts of it I saw were really—it was all from a dog's point of view. And uh, I don't know if it was. Silent. It wasn't silent, but I don't know if it had no dialogue. But I remember, I remember it being it got a lot of attention. But I'm not sure if he directed it. But I'm sort of thinking that he did. 
If memory you know, it, serves on that, I believe that uh, I believe that Danny Elfman did the score for that episode. I, I uh-huh. think I could be wrong, but I think he may have done the score for that episode. That's you know neither here nor there, but I just thought it might right. be noting. Um, I'm looking through my soundtrack anthology for this, and I see where where Williams scored that episode you're talking about, the Ghost Train. So it's it's very likely uh-huh. that that Spielberg did direct that episode. It's if he didn't, it's somebody who's really trying to to be like him, which like Joe Dante would sort of do. There were there were a few directors that, that sort of Columbus and, and Christopher Columbus, yeah, and. Uh, but you know, it had the whole. It had the little kid and his grandfather. You know, it was. It was. It, yeah, I'm. I'm just about. And it's funny because I, I think I'll explain right now that we don't really like go in to like the internet movie database because our we're trying to use our brains as that. <laughs> so a lot of our information is completely. You know, basically we're talking out of our asses. About a lot of this stuff, you know, like the family dog, you know, I could be completely wrong and I invite people to please tell me when I'm wrong, you know, I'll have my email flooded in in that case. But uh, yeah, if you're calling here for, or if you're listening to us for a, you know, well-researched and uh, thorough, <laughs> thorough you're podcast, you're, oh, you're wasting a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> You've gotten this far to find that out, and you you might as well just walk away now. Walk away, just walk away. <laughs> All right. Um, but then again, you'll be surprised that. Pardon me. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to walk all over you. What'd you say? I was just gonna say you'd be surprised at some some of the stuff that comes out that's dead accurate from nowhere that I've that I forgotten i've even known about eight million stupid things oh, I, I know I, that's 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 us man we are a font of of geek knowledge man well the only other thing i can think of with amazing stories is uh you know i i don't i don't think i saw all of them by any stretch it was one of those shows if i remember right i think it moved around it either moved around when it was on or it was one of those where there was something else on that i i liked that i was watching at the time or something like Uh that but but uh i did enjoy the show it didn't didn't seem to last very long didn't it only last like a season or two it only lasted a a season or two it was probably had a huge budget you know yeah, they probably had to have humongous ratings just to survive, and it just it didn't make it, you know. Or or maybe towards the end of the second season, they started like slacking off and hiring just regular TV directors. And, and I did enjoy done. it though. Yeah. Yeah, a couple that couple that stand out. See, I haven't seen it since it was on originally, which was well. Let's see here. It says 1985, so I haven't seen it in you know all those years, but. The the two that really stand out in my mind that I really enjoy enjoyed there was one that was called Alamo Job and that one was really cool. It was about a, a kid actually at the Battle of the Alamo who starts to see like glimpses of like the present or well, you know, at our that present. time it was the our present and eventually moves into our present. And that was a really good good episode. I liked that one a lot. And uh and then there was another one where uh Mark Hamill was in it. 
And as when he's a kid, he's approached by uh, I don't know a leprechaun or elf or some damn thing, and and the thing tells him basically don't ever throw your shit away. So he becomes. I remember at the end of the episode, he's like an old homeless guy living in a van or some shit, and he goes to a comic shop. And he ends up selling them like a Detective Twenty Seven, which is like the first appearance of Batman, and like right. all these like super comics, you know, that are worth like just shitloads of money. And you know, so I guess the lesson was, you know, to you know just hold on to your shit. All Save your, life. your comic books. <laughs> I, I, I don't really. It was supposed to have some sort of a point, I guess, but it was just a neat episode as a, as a comic geek to yeah, you know, to all these comics, you know, that, that he had, and, you know, and he ends up making all this money off of it and everything, and which I guess didn't help the whole speculator boom of the '90s. But it was it was a good episode. I don't like I said, I don't remember a whole lot about it. It was just kind of interesting that it had uh, had Mark Hamill in it. And, you know, he had kind of a range in that episode because he ages. Oh, yeah. To a point, you know, where he's an old man at the end of the episode and everything. Um, So that's amazing stories. Moving on. Also uh, listed here as 1985 was The Color Purple with with, Whoopi Goldberg. Oprah Winfrey. uh, Oprah Friggin' Winfrey, I can't stand her. Yeah, but this was this was how Oprah Winfrey basically, you know, got launched into where she is now. And it also had uh, what's his name from Predator Two and the Lethal Weapon series in it. Um, Danny Glover. Glover, yeah. Wasn't he also in that movie? Yes, he was. Yeah. I think Samuel L. Jackson was in it too. Oh wow! Possibly. I didn't know that. I, now, this, all I know is I've never seen it. I probably should have seen it by now, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, neither have I. This is the first one on the list uh, for Spielberg that, that I haven't seen. And uh, Yep, me too. Got to be honest, it's uh, it's one I really have zero interest in seeing. I've just never really been interested in this movie. Um, I remember years ago seeing uh, Spielberg on the Oprah show. And they were talking about this movie, and he was talking about... I guess there's some scene in the movie where Oprah comes out of a building or something, and all these people are you know, calling her racial names and screaming and, and, and all this stuff, and she freaks out or something. And according to the story Spielberg told on the show, you know, this was all done, like, real. Like, she came out, and he, you know, had, had it all, all set, set up... up. Yeah, so as soon as she came out, they started right in on her, and you know, I'm presuming she must have read the script, but still to come out and have the scene going, and she didn't right. really realize. I guess it, you know, so anything that you see in the movie supposedly is a is a truer reaction than if you know they'd rehearsed the whole scene and then done it. You know, they did it kind of live, if if you know what I'm saying. And that that sounds kind of interesting, you know. I know that Spielberg does you know little tricks like that to really you know get the emotions from from his actors and stuff. And I thought that was kind of an interesting story, but I don't know. I just really have no interest. My wife says it's a good movie, but I I've, just I've always wanted to see this. This movie is sort of a, one of his turning points in his career because this is where not necessarily as much for him personally, but for the way Hollywood perceived him. Mm-hmm. As now that he made this serious movie that wasn't didn't have an element of fantasy, and it it covered a you know a, 
I wouldn't say controversial topic at the time, but it, it you know, well, yeah, it, 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 and it was, it was serious subject matter. So all of a sudden now he's a serious filmmaker and there right. was Which, a big to do about it because now it's more than a pop movie. Now it's also, you know, real art. And he right. was sort of validated as, as an artist because of this. And I think like a lot of his later movies were sort of were sort of spawned out of out of that idea you know uh, it, it it his other movies that weren't fantasy or action movies after that always had a, a bit of the serious edge of the color purple and uh you know he 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 started to do movies with more of a social message or a social point of view or taking on a topic and and start alternating them with lighter or more um sci-fi oriented you know something more of that that aspect but this was where steven spielberg the the serious filmmaker emerged for better yeah. or for worse you know i think i i mean personally to me as soon as he started making movies, he was a serious filmmaker. Yeah, every bit as serious as like Alfred Hitchcock. Absolutely, and that 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 will play into a, a rant I've got later on uh-huh. on this subject. But yeah, absolutely, I I I have a problem with you know that exact thing you said. You know that that suddenly he was a serious filmmaker. Well, what do you mean he wasn't serious when he made Jaws? He wasn't serious when he made Raiders and E.T. I, yeah, it, it bugs me that whole you know how. You know, because that—that's exactly what was said about him at the time. Yeah, you know, those sudden, movies are entertainments. You know, I—I I, I imagine it's got to be much the same feeling as, uh, you know, Stephen King has commented on this a lot of times. Yeah. How people ask, you know, well, when are you going to write a real book? You know, I mean, that's got to really hurt your feelings and piss you off. You know, at I the mean, same time, I'm, yeah. I'm sure to him, he feels like all of his books are real books. You well, know, yeah, all of them. I'm sure he's poured a lot of himself into him and he's put a lot of time and effort into him and yeah, to have somebody go, well, you know, oh, and, and, and meanwhile, he's done every, he's reached every pinnacle of success that you would hope to as a writer, no matter, you know, he's gotten money, he's gotten to make movies, he's gotten to act, he's, he's gotten to write pretty much every book he'd want to write. You know, he's got, as an artist, he's in this perfect position. And then to have somebody go, oh, you know, <clears throat> you're not as valid as, say, William Faulkner because right. you're writing horror novels. And right. that it just, and it just automatically, it's like, well, you're a good author, but you're the best of like a crappy genre. So that's pretty good. You know, it's very condescending. It is. This is the, uh, the fourth Spielberg movie nominated for Best Picture. This was in 1985. Now, did um, it win that year? No, it did not. It was up you against... You think it would have. I have got to say, of the movies on this list, I believe I've only ever seen one of them. It was it was up against Kiss of the Spider Woman. I've Pritzy's, seen that. Pritzy's Honor. I've seen that. Witnessed, which was a damn good movie. Yeah, we saw that together with your we parents. Did. Yeah, yeah, I, I like that movie a lot. And the winner was Out of Africa. 
which I haven't seen that. I've seen. Have no interest to see. Meryl Streep. I can't stand her. All right, so uh, moving along, we go to damn Meryl Streep. <laughs> Sadly, another another Spielberg one neither movie. of us have seen. Have, oh, you haven't seen this one either? Yeah, no, Empire? I've seen little. I've oh. seen maybe like ten, a couple, three, ten-minute chunks flipping through on TV before. This one's Empire of the Sun, 1987. Um, about the only thing I can say about this one is, uh, from what I've heard of the soundtrack, again, uh, uh, John Williams, and I forgot to mention in The Color Purple, that one is not scored by uh, John Williams. That was the first full-length. So that's full the length, first one. Yeah, the first full-length Spielberg movie uh, not scored by Williams, and I can't off the top of my head tell you who did score that one. Um, Empire of the Sun, though, uh, does have a, a John Williams soundtrack, and what I've heard of it, it's uh, it's very, very good. It's it's a definitely a movie I want to see. I just have never have never made the time. And uh, uh, if memory serves, the little boy in that movie is uh, is somebody famous. And you looked it up. You said it was Christian Bale. Christian Bale, Batman. It's Batman, the new Batman. Huh. Yeah, I'll get around to that movie one of these days, but no, I, I really don't even know that much about it. I know it's it's sort of semi-autobiographical about the author J.G. Ballard, and that's that's about all I know. <laughs> I, with the, the sequence I saw had him, I think he was throwing a paper airplane over a fence to a little uh, Japanese kid. Now, I remember the... The trailers, when the trailers were out, I remember seeing the trailers and going, eh, that looks like it might be all right, but just somehow just never never made the time. And that's the funny thing about uh, about Spielberg. You know, Spielberg's name comes up, and you, you immediately think of all these huge movies that he's done, but he has done a lot of little quiet, you know, out-of-the-way movies that, that I think people just aren't even aware of. You know, like this one and uh, and Always comes to mind, which you know will come up on a little bit later. I just realized something is from um, Color Purple, Empire of the Sun, um, Always and Hook, two of the other ones coming up, are all movies I haven't seen. The only one of in that time period that I saw was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. And that was the time period when I went to college. Ah. So I was in college and like I never got, you know, I made sure I got to the movies to see Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. But, the, the you know, I probably meant to go see those other movies, but, you know, I was just focused on that at that time. Or so that's, I just realized that's the whole, that's the whole, pretty much I think after that I've seen every movie after that. Or remind me when we get to Hook, because I didn't know that you'd never seen Hook, never. And, uh, and I've got a I've got an interesting story about Hook when we get there. Okay, that well, involves you actually. Oh, really? So, uh, so moving on, we've got uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, nineteen eighty nine. Man, I did, you know, looking at the dates on these just kills me because I can't believe it's been so long yeah. for some of these. Because it, it, this one really this feels like twenty years. Yeah, almost, and it, it really does not feel like that long ago, because I can no. remember, I went to see this at, at least three times at the theater, because I know I went to see it with the girl I was going out with at the time, 
twice, and then I saw it one time with my father. And I tell you, this is this is a great father son movie because it is yeah, a father son. That's all it is. Yeah, but it, it was. It was. It was one of the. I mean, my dad and I have been to a lot of movies together, and this was one of the more enjoyable movies that we saw together, and and really enjoyed and and talked a lot about, like on the ride home and stuff, and. I think that's one of the reasons that this movie's always really had a, a special place in my heart because, you know, we, we shared the same kind of moment after seeing it, you know, that, that was shared in the movie, you know, kind of a, you know, just a, a, a father-son, you know, coming together kind of thing, I guess you would say. And uh, and I, I really like this one. I, I kind of flip-flop between this one and Raiders as, as my favorite uh, Indiana Jones movies, and, and for very different reasons. Yeah, it, this one, the first time I saw it, I thought it was good, but I thought it was like, I was like, well, you know, it was a little, the action was kind of toned down in it, you know? It wasn't as much of like a crazy Rube Goldberg, you know type of effect. There were a few scenes where, you know, where they were on the turntable, Lazy Susan, and on the other side there were the Germans broadcasting and they're flipping back and forth in the fireplace. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, it was kind of, you know, it was just a, a sort of simple motorcycle chase. The airplane chase is, it's exciting, but it's not a lot of acrobatics and special effects, you know, it was just a sort of a dogfight, you know. And everything was sort of very straightforward, and I liked it that way, there because it was a lot of just um, it it was more about the interplay between Harrison Ford and um, Sean Connery, and mm -hmm. they're both just amazing actors. So yeah. you know, both their characters are instantly to life. You know, Sean Connery had that character completely fleshed out, and. Uh, you know, I'm sure it was also sort of written around Sean Connery, too. But, uh, I mean, it worked out, it just worked out perfectly. And that ca that could carry the movie. A lot of the, some of the action in it was a little doofy, like with the, with the tank. There were, there were some scenes that were obviously, like, undercranked, where, you know, they, they filmed it at a slower speed. So when they play it back, it's sort of, it's supposed to look faster, but it gets a little that herky-jerky right. to it. But still, nothing, nothing terrible. But uh, you know, I thought that oh, was good. You know, it was the the lightest of the Indiana Jones movies. And then a couple years later, I, I caught it on TV, and I was like, you know, I really underestimated this movie. It's really well done mm -hmm. and really well thought out, and you know, every everything about it's really neat. You know? I love the hell out of this movie. I really do. I I, I like it across all spectrums you know it, it it moves me you know on a, on a on an emotional level in certain parts you know it makes me laugh and and it's got some genuine i mean some real genuine chills and thrills in it i mean you know yep. two sequences that that come immediately to mind that i really really like in this is the part where he he's got the i think the guy's italian but it, anyway it's in italy the part where they're on the boats and he's got the guy cornered, and he's trying to interrogate him. And as he's interrogating him, the boat is literally being chopped to pieces chopped by, up a by giant the on a on a ship. And I mean, that's an amazing effect. I mean, it really looks real, like you know, like they're in some serious peril if they don't get the hell out of there quickly. Yeah. You know, I mean, 
it looks very realistic, like a, you know, like a true physical effect. I think I, it was. I, I like that, and I like uh, uh, a sequence that reminds me a lot of my favorite sequence in Temple of Doom is the part where Indy's hooked on the uh, on the cannon on the tank. Right. He's, hang, he's hanging over the side, and he's you know he's about to be you know scraped to death on this like outcropping a rock, and he's yeah. just got this look on his face like oh shit, and he can't think of any way to get out. I mean he's totally screwed, and uh, and I, I like that for the same reasons I like the, the the sequence in Temple of Doom. It's the same kind of kind of thing, you know. The music, you know, is just really pumping. It's really great. It's got you you know all worked up and. You know, Indy's really screwed, and the bad guy's standing there taunting him, you know, knows that he can't get out of it. And it, it's just a great scene. I really like that sequence. And I, I think, you know, Spielberg really outdoes himself in, in those sequences with Indiana Jones, where he really makes you feel, you know, the peril. You know, yeah. really. Makes <laughs> well, you know, you know, Indy has no idea what he's going to do at that point. He's thinking, right. here it is, I'm going to die right now. And at the same time, he's doing the Kirk, you know, no, you know, there's that refusal to die. And then the conflict of that is on his face. So it's like horror and determination and pain all mixed together. Well, he's got a great uh, Harrison Ford has a, has just a a great, great moment in that movie where, uh, you know, he's gone through just so much shit in this movie and he's fighting the, the Colonel on top of the tank and he's, you know, beating the guy's face against the metal hatch. And he's just wailing yep. on the guy. And he looks up and realizes they're about to go off a cliff. And that moment is just, I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, the the look on his face is like you said. He's got like 20 emotions at the same time. Yep. And suddenly, you know, his hat that has stayed on through all of his adventure, all the shit that he has ever done, never loses his hat. Suddenly, in that one moment when he's probably at at the most peril of of the entire trilogy, his hat blows off. You know, he's got this just look on his face like he, you know, he realizes what's coming, has no idea how to get out of it. You know, and and then the the tank goes off. The I just that's a great great moment in that movie. But just the the look on on Harrison Ford's face is just you know just priceless. I mean that that that's a that's an Oscar moment, you know? It really is. That's an Oscar clip right there. But guess what? It didn't win an Oscar. Not even nominated. That's it's a damn shame. That's what kills me. Well, if anything by Spielberg, they're not going to, you know, they're going to have to not, you know, if anything's going to get nominated for, a, you know, other than special effects or music or costumes or, or set design, it's going to be one of his serious. Mm-hmm serious movies mm. oh, it, as Hollywood dictates <laughs> alright we're, we're another 30 minutes alright we're reckless arrogant stupid dicks and the film actors guild are pussies and Kim Jong Il is an asshole pussies don't like dicks because pussies get fucked by dicks. But dicks also fuck assholes. Assholes who just want to shit on everything. Pussies may think they can deal with assholes their way, but the only thing that can fuck an asshole 
is a dick with some balls. The problem with dicks is that sometimes they fuck too much or fuck when it isn't appropriate. Yes, Gary, yes. And it takes a pussy to show them that. But sometimes pussies get so full of shit that they become assholes themselves. Because pussies are only an inch and a half away from assholes. I don't know much in this crazy, crazy world. But I do know that if you don't let us fuck this asshole, we are gonna have our dicks and our pussies all covered in shit. So the next movie is... It's, uh... I've never seen it. I'll... I, I know it is also the brand name of a feminine hygiene product. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always wondered about that. And, and strangely, it has wings in it, too. D- oh, oh just... does it? <laughs> that's completely disgusting. Wow, yes, that's some uh, product placement there. Always. Genius. 1989. Genius. Now, I can't believe you've never seen this movie. This is another one of those, what, what I would describe as a little out-of-the-way Steven Spielberg right. movie that, that people just, you know, this just doesn't come immediately to mind when you think of, of Steven Spielberg. It got now, good I'm reviews, not sure I remember. if this was the exact same year that uh, a very similar movie came out. It was uh, Ghost with uh, Patrick Swayze, Demi oh, yeah. Moore, and, uh, and Goldberg. Uh, Whoopi Goldberg. Now, what annoyed the hell out of me was that I went to see both those movies, both Always and Ghost, with the same girlfriend. And I can't remember her reaction to Always, but she absolutely loved Ghost. All the women Uh love Ghost. What a great movie. I thought Ghost sucked. And I was really annoyed by the fact that, in my opinion, it stole Always Thunder. Because the stories are very similar. You know, the... Right at the beginning of the movie, the hero dies. Sorry if that's a spoiler to anybody, but, you know, the the hero dies. And it's the story of them coming to deal with the fact that they are dead. And Ghost goes one way with the story, which, to me, I don't know. You got to see Always. You know, Always, to me, is about, really, it's a more believable approach to that concept of you are dead, your, your life is over. You need to make your peace with your life. And I think Always does it in a very believable respect. I mean, it, it's basically, the, the story is Richard Dreyfus, and, and again, you know, this was what, the second or third, this was the third teaming of, of Dreyfus and Spielberg on a movie, um, Jaws and Close Encounters being the other two times. And... Uh, and Dreyfus is great in this movie. He's uh, he's this pilot, and he's a firefighter pilot. You know those those planes that come in and dump like that chemical right. shit on fires. And he uh, he and his girlfriend. His girlfriend is played by uh, Holly Hunter, who's just a doll in this movie. I don't think she's weathered very good over the years, but yeah. she's a babe <laughs> in this movie. And uh, and John Goodman, an early John Goodman uh, appearance in the movies, and he's really good as he's a really uh, good as actor. best friend. And uh, I, this may have be the may have been the first thing I ever saw John Goodman, and I'm not sure if this is his first movie, but I think it's the first thing I ever saw him in. Anyway, early on in the movie, um, there's a, a big forest fire sequence, and 
um, John Goodman's plane is damaged and he's in imminent danger of, of uh, his plane exploding. So Richard Dreyfus, you know, zooms in like the hero, uses his own chemical dump to put the fire out on John Goodman's plane and then the process catches his own plane on fire. And there's a, a really powerful sequence in the movie where you know, Dreyfus has just rescued John Goodman, and John Goodman's looking over at Richard Dreyfus, and Dreyfus is kind of making a, you know, kind of a boy that was close. And then he looks and realizes his his engine's on fire, and he looks back at John Goodman and has this kind of a smirky, kind of a Harrison Ford kind of <laughs> isn't this you know just my yeah. luck kind of look. And as he's making that look at John Goodman. Boom! His plane explodes, and it's very powerful. The look on John Goodman's face is just like this total. This can't be happening. Look, you know. I mean, it's very realistic, very believable look on his face that he's just watched his best friend blow up. And so the whole rest of the movie is, uh, um, oh, what's the actress's name from Holly uh, Hunter? No, Breakfast at Tiffany's. Um, oh, damn, I can't think of her name. Hepburn, Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn. Uh, Audrey Hepburn. I, this may have been her last movie. I'm not sure. It was one of her last performances anyway before she does. She's excellent. She comes in and she's, I guess she's supposed to be an angel, but she she doesn't look like it. She just looks like Audrey Hepburn, and she comes in and, and she is talking to Richard Dreyfus and basically explaining to him, you know, look, Pete, you, you're dead. You've died. And, you know, now what you're expected to do is make peace with your life. And so he's sent back to Earth to basically put Holly Hunter as his girlfriend, his love, his true love, and in a, in a lesser extent, John Goodman, who was his best friend, to basically put them in e at ease with his death and help them move on with their lives now that he's not around anymore. And it, it's very funny and really very touching. I mean, it, it really, I mean, this was a movie that really moved me on a lot of levels. It, it's really good. It's, it's, in my opinion, it's one of, uh, one of Dreyfus's better performances. I mean, he's he's very likable, he's very believable, and uh, and he and Holly Hunter just really have a chemistry. As a matter of fact, they made another movie together not long after this. Uh, I can't remember what the name of it was. Um, it was like a like a uh, what do you call it? Romantic comedy. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, they have such chemistry in this movie. They really really work well together. But I think what what put people off. Well, for one thing, I don't think the movie was well attended. I don't think it did very well box office wise. But I think what put it off was that it didn't have that overt sexuality like Ghost had. But Ghost right. to me was a creepier story because in that one it was the exact opposite. You know, the ghost wasn't letting go of the girl. You know, right. he, was he was dead, but he was very selfishly holding on to her and not letting her move along in her life i mean it, it, the movie even doesn't you know it doesn't even resolve i mean at the end of it he's basically like well i'll be waiting for you in heaven or where the hell or wherever i'm going to yeah. and to me it's like well how selfish is that i mean you know demi moore is what 20s 30s in that movie so what she's got to wait the whole rest of her her life to right. 
to go to heaven to meet Patrick Swayze, you know? Well, see, the funny thing about that movie is I only saw that in the last couple years. So I don't have that memory of it when it came out. So to me, it was really cheesy because it had that <laughs> just 80s look to it right from yeah, the get go. And it, it, and and it always does. Uh, and it and had all, some I'm tension sorry. to it, and it had some. It was it was a decent, it was a watchable movie, but man, it was you know, well, for the phenomena that it was, it, it really doesn't hold up too well. And I'm sure it, it always <laughs> holds up a lot better. It does it really does it? it I, I saw it again not long ago, and it holds up very well. Um, it, it's not an overly Spielbergian movie. You know, it doesn't have the typical. You know, sticky sweetness, right. you know, Spielberg touch, and it, it, it doesn't have any cheese that I can remember. I mean, it, it's really done as a straight. He's been uh, shot at, at, from this point, from from after the next movie on, he pretty much has shied away from any kind of like um, tutti frutti happiness. That's true. That's very true. Well, uh, about the only other thing I can say about this one is, uh, you know, again scored by uh, by John Williams and uh, and one of his kind of stranger scores. It's it's very subdued. It's not overly thematic. It's uh, you know, it, it's not a typical John Williams score, but you know, still a very good one. And uh, you ready to move on to the next one? Sure. All right. The next Another one, one I haven't is, seen. Much maligned movie, and and Hook. Uh, you know, really, in my opinion, uh, not deserving of it at all is uh, Hook, nineteen ninety one. Now, you said you never saw this movie, and I got to thinking, I saw this movie at the theater with your girlfriend, and I don't remember what her name was now, but uh, yeah, when this came out in in ninety one, we had gone, if I remember right, we had gone. Christmas shopping, and decided to go see this movie. But do, do you know what girlfriend this would have been? <laughs> I can't remember. Ah, yeah, Why you didn't go with us? I don't know. I guess it she must was, have been working. It had to have been Serena. I think she was a blonde. Was she blonde? No, I can't no, remember. She now. was a brunette. But that was the only. That was the only. Um. Because when I lived on Monroe Avenue, I can't think of... I don't think I had a girlfriend at that time. It must have been back at the Keller Street house. I think so. And it was pri- It must have been Serena, who had sort of um, dark brown hair. Serena with the dark brown hair. I can't remember. I, I remember seeing another movie, and I came out of that movie, and I peeked into Hook, and I saw, like, one shot of, like, Robin Williams laying in the snow... And the camera spiraling down towards him, very Spielberg like with snowflakes coming down and, and the music. I think I know and that's, what you're talking about. And that's all I've really, except for scenes that they would show in the previews and stuff, that's really all I've ever seen of that movie. I'm going to send you my DVD of this. Is it, I, I is think... it Dustin Hoffman in it? I mean, I'd yes, love to see is. Dustin Hoffman in a Steven Spielberg movie. Knowing, knowing you like I do, and knowing your taste in movies, I think, I think that you would really like this movie. And, and you had commented to me off the air that 
you know, you didn't, one of the big reasons you didn't see it was because, you know, the critics really panned it and really dogged it. But, you know, I, I say, you know, ever since, for me, the, the critics kept me from seeing one of my very favorite movies of all time because of shitty reviews and everything. And that was uh, Tron. When Tron came oh. out, they dogged the hell out of Tron. And so I didn't go That's see true. it. And I, you know, remember I had a cousin that, that kept telling me, oh, you'd, you'd love this movie, you'd love it. And I was like, ah, you know, Siskel and Ebert didn't like it and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, today, that's, you know, it's one of my favorite movies. So ever since then, I was like, ah, to hell with critics. They don't, you know, they don't know me. They might know, you know, some boring ass, you know, English patient movie, but they don't know me. They don't know my taste in movies, you know. So, but anyway, getting back to Hook, man, I love this movie. I, I really liked it. I, I remember at the mo- at the time I saw it being kind of indifferent. I mean, I didn't dislike it, but I walked away going, eh, it was all right. And then, you know, I, it came out on video at, at some point later in the future. And I, I remember I was working at a place then where we had it uh, on uh, on our playlist. And I played it like all the time. And just by by it being on and just repeated viewings and stuff, and then later on when I had you know kids of my own, I have little boys. I, I really found an affinity for this movie. You know, I, I really came to really like it and and hold it up as one of my my favorite Spielberg movies. And I, I think it was a very personal movie to him too, from what I've heard. You know, it was a, it was a really personal story. You know, as far as uh, you know the subject matter. I mean, basically, it's it's the story. You know, the way it was touted in the in the trailers, the original trailers for the movie, is pretty much what the movie is. Uh, you know, I remember the in the trailers, you know, cut between scenes, you'd get words that would flash up during the trailer, and the words linked all together were, "What if Peter Pan grew up?" And that's really the the whole premise of the movie is that. Robin Williams um, is Peter Pan. Yeah, he he comes to you know he comes to be convinced because he doesn't remember this, but he comes to be convinced over the course of the movie that he is the actual you know literary Peter Pan. And the movie, I think another reason why maybe the movie didn't click with people is that I think most people. You know, in this day and age, I think most people's identification with Peter Pan comes from the Walt Disney movie, Peter Pan. Right. And that movie, it, you know, it's very good. It's an excellent movie. It's one of my favorite Disney movies. But like most Disney movies, it takes great liberties with the source material. Right. And while, while Disney's Peter Pan is pretty faithful to the original book, the original ending to the Peter Pan story, you know, in the, in the Disney movie that it, it ends with, you know, Peter's defeated captain hook, you know, and he, he's got Wendy and the boys and they sail on this, you know, flying ship back to the real world. And he drops Wendy and the boys off with their parents. And then he flies off with tink. And I think the lost boys with him and they're on this, this flying ship. And that's pretty much how the movie ends. Well, the original story ends where Peter continues to come back to the real world and he checks in with with Wendy periodically right as she grows up and she grows he he realizes this over time that that she's aging and eventually he comes back the last time 
And, you know, she tells him, well, you know, I don't remember how to fly, Peter. You know, I, I'm grown up now. I'm I'm an old lady. And and uh, really, a, a really good way to see this movie, in my opinion, to see Hook and really, really enjoy it is to get a hold of the Mary Martin, the live-action Peter Pan, if you, oh, if you can track yeah. that down, because that does end that way. And, you know, where where he comes back and, and she basically rejects him, she says, you know, I, I can't go with you anymore. You know, I, I, I've grown up. And he's really hurt. He's really mad at her because she promised that she wouldn't grow up. But, you know, all kids... Except Peter Pan grow up. That's the first line of the book. You know, all children except Peter Pan grow up. And so the the premise of this movie was, what if that last time he came back, somehow she convinced him not to return to Neverland, you know, to stay in the real world? And he does. And he grows up, and because he's back in the real world, he forgets Neverland, and he doesn't remember ever being Peter Pan. And he grows up, and and that's kind of where the movie picks up is at a point where you know he's this you know successful. I think he's a lawyer, and he's kind of an asshole, you know. And you know he's got these cute little kids that you know he basically ignores. ignores. He's kind of, he's kind of a dick, and. And so it's basically it's it's the the story of him not only rediscovering that he's Peter Pan, but really it's him learning to identify with children again, to you know right. to to identify with with himself, his his inner child, and to identify with his children, and and really to convince his children that that he does love them, and that you know that he's willing to fight for them. It's it, it, there's a lot of like underlying tones, but a lot of it to me seems to come from you know Spielberg had you know kind of a traumatic childhood. You know it, the the divorce of his parents really took a, a, a personal toll on right on him, and a number of his movies. Um, E.T. is another one that comes to mind. You really example, touch yeah. on, yeah. They touch on the fact that you know that that scarred him emotionally as a child. And Hook is another one that I think is is a very personal movie for Spielberg because it has a lot of elements to it that really seem to echo, you know, his his own life and his own. Uh, I well, was yeah, going to say beliefs, but you know what I mean. You know what I mean? You know, and you know, and with the with the switch in his movies from from that sort of childlike to to being a little more gritty might have had something to do with. I don't know how old his children are. I'm assuming he has children. Oh yeah. But I would bet you that like right around you know Empire of the Sun, Indiana Jones, or through that whole period, like the Amazing Stories period was probably the time when he was with his kids the most. Right. And he made a lot of movies that he figured his kids could watch. And then after then after you know Hook might have been like him getting the last of that out of his system and after that his kids were grown up enough that he could he could make movies with more mature themes that they could actually watch. That follow. I think I actually remember him saying that he probably wouldn't let his kids watch Jurassic Park for a couple of years when that movie came out. Well, I remember but when that would... 
Back to the Future 2 came out, the marquee that, that Marty sees in the future says Jaws part, whatever it is, 19 or 17 or something, directed by Max Spielberg, who is his son. And I want to say Max at the time was maybe seven, something like I remember. I remember there being an interview yeah. about and, and you know, the, the, they talked about the in-joke with that. And I, I think I want to say Max was under seven years old when when that was done and that movie was what like 88 89 something like yeah, that Yeah, something like that so yeah that that kind of follows but yeah i think i think once he did hook and got it out of his system and especially when it wasn't very well received uh, i i think that maybe he he had it out of him by then and 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 moved on from from that kind of movie you know that that, that yeah which would be a great cue to what he moved on to, which was the exact opposite, pretty Well, I wouldn't say the exact opposite, because there were kids in it. Jurassic Park. Yep. 1993. Now, I'm very curious to, to hear what you, what you thought of Jurassic Park. I'll let you go first on this one. Okay. I- well, that's funny, because I, I actually have a... Uh, it's not a great story, but it's, it was a very memorable... I was working in a Mexican restaurant, and I had this big, fat Mexican boss. He looked like Pancho Villa. He was a great guy. And, like, everybody at work, we were all looking forward to this because this was pretty much the buzz of it was Steven Spielberg's going back to the sort of Jaws. He's going to do some horror here, and it it involved dinosaurs. Come on, it was going to be great. So we went to opening night. We all got out of work. All Like, the boss drove... In his in his pickup truck with all like half the employees all trundled up in the back of it, and we drove out to watch Jurassic Park, and I remember loving it. And we get to the end, t- towards the end, where they're in the kitchen and the the Velociraptors are are stalking them through the kitchen, and my boss is sitting next to me, and he's looking at this restaurant equipment. And he's like, "Oh, look at that! That's a piece of that's a." You know, that's a Coleman 325. That thing, <laughs> that thing costs a pretty penny. That's beautiful. And I'm like, he, you're such a restaurateur that you're in the middle of this, in, the, the most intense part of the movie. And he, and all he can do is look at all that restaurant equipment. And he was drooling. He was just like, oh, it's beautiful. Look at it. It's all brand new. Oh, my God. <laughs> but I, I really enjoyed the movie. I thought there were there were a couple kind of cheesy Spielbergy moments in it, but for there was some g- good grit to it. Um, <clears throat> I'm not really quite sure how I feel about like the Jeff Goldblum character in it because I like the I like Jeff Goldblum as an actor and I think he's really good in this, but his character is just sort of there to constantly be remi- you know to remind them, you know, chaos is going to take over, you know, you can't control nature, you can't control nature. You don't really need that, you know, it's sort of, you, you just need someone to say that once, and that was sort of all his character functioned as. Right. And 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 it was, it, it was weird, it had a lot, lot more upbeat ending than the, the book. In the book, um, the old guy gets killed 
by a bunch Does of he? little I, copy I read the creatures. book and I didn't remember that. He gets chased down at the end and he like falls down in the water and a bunch of those those little tiny chicken compy creatures finish huh. him off. That happens in the beginning of the uh, right of the next one. Right, that's kind of funny. I wonder if they did that on purpose. They might have wanted to use that scene because it was a pretty powerful scene, but they they didn't want to kill the kid, you know, because it would have been very unspielbergy to have that character die because he's sort of the magical scientist, you know, he's a lovable grandpa. Right. In the book, he was a little more power hungry, a little more obsessive about it, you know. His his death was a little seemed a little more deserved because he overlooked a lot of things, you know, in his quest to, to make the dinosaurs. But overall, I thought it was really good. I mean, for one of the first movies to have uh, CG, the CG still holds up better than most of the stuff, you know, as, as not being very CG. And there's some, right. re- there's some real head, dinosaur heads and 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 actual physical models built, which I think helps a little bit with the whole thing but uh, you know for I mean it's really funny that some of the first real CG movies like episode one and this one sort of hold up better than a lot of the later ones that have come after that you know as far maybe it was because they were in the hands of such competent directors or I think it's the yeah the production values you know the visual directors did an extra good job but I mean, I, I really liked it. It wasn't I, it wasn't the all-out terror fest that I thought it, that I was led to believe it was going to be. Right. But it was an enjoyable Spielberg movie, and I think it was the sort of the last one until the new Indiana Jones that was just sort of a popcorn movie that he made. You know, that was just uh, uh, it was a a ride you know a a theme show theme park ride or something you know well I don't know I mean there there is the sequel you know well that's true that's true he did he did do you know the the first sequel then now there's been there's been just what there's been three of them right yeah he didn't do the last one but he did do this yeah I'll I'll agree with that once once he did the sequel to this yeah he he kind of you're right. He didn't really do another popcorn movie again until uh, until the new Indiana Jones. You're yeah. right. I hadn't thought of that. Now, for me, Jurassic Park, I, I, I got to say it, this movie was a huge disappointment to me. And I, I'm like the only person I know that feels this way. But see, I saw – I really followed this movie a lot. In, in, you know, in the in the production phase, because when I first heard it announced, you know, I, I hadn't read the book or anything like that, but – I was just excited by the concept, you know, that, that you know, it was going to be about dinosaurs in the, in the real world, you know. And then I saw an interview with him somewhere, you know, some on TV somewhere. And this is what ruined it for me was that he compared Jurassic Park, the movie he was making, to The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. Now, I love that movie. And in that movie, but that's you know, in the for, city. Right, exactly. And, you know, the the premise of that movie, for anybody who hasn't ever seen it, you know, this is an old 50s sci-fi movie, but it's one of the best. And in, in this movie, kind of like kind of like Godzilla, there's a, I think it's an atomic test, frees this prehistoric, he kind of looks like a, 
kind of looks like a brontosaurus, but he's like a you know he's like with teeth. But it, you know, it frees this dinosaur from the Arctic or Antarctic or wherever it's supposed to be, and eventually it swims, makes its way to New York City. So it's you know it's very it's very uh, Godzilla like, right? You know, and it, and it comes to the city, and so it's 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 this giant dinosaur loose in New York City. And, you know, so I, I've loved this movie since I was a kid. It's a damn good movie. I think it holds up really well today, even though it's all, you know, claymation. Ray Harryhausen, stop motion, you know, claymation stuff. It holds up really, really well. And, you know, I, I get a thrill out of it anytime I see it or whenever it's on or whatever. So anyway, you know, hearing Spielberg compare the movie he was making to this, you know, I had visions in my head of like a, you know, like a Disneyland, you know. Yeah. In some park somewhere, or some city somewhere, rather. Yep. You know, like a, like a bush gardens or something, where suddenly something goes wrong, and all these dinosaurs are going to be out and running around and climbing buildings and eating people and knocking cars over yeah. and shit. Sort of that's the, the Westworld scenario. Yeah. So that's what I pictured. That That's what I had built up in my mind. Yeah, me that this, too. The, this movie was going to be. So then, you know, I go to the movie and, you know, they, you know, the whole thing, they go to this island, you know, and, and the whole thing's on this, you know, lush tropical island. And to me that, it just ruined it. It's like, you know, how the hell can you call this a theme park? How, how can you, cons- you know, this isn't a theme park. It parks in California or Florida, yeah. you know I mean? that That's what I had envisioned. So... It's not so much really a fault with the movie, other than it was a fault with the way that the, the it was presented to me. Is how I felt. Like I, I felt and your cheated. Expectations. Like, yeah. Yeah, and it really wasn't until the next movie, you know, the the Lost World Jurassic Park, you know, the sequel, that I really felt like I got the 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 payoff that I had been promised with the original. Yeah. I'm the person I know that likes the sequel better. I thought The Lost World was a damn fine movie. I really liked it. And the reason that I liked it so much was it does take place in a... You know, some of it does take well, place have, in a... You know, I and I really let's, I, let's cover both movies at the same time. Yeah, that's let's, cool. Let's, 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 let's cover Lost World 2 right here, like, real quick because then, then we can and, and it, then we can start the middle one. <laughs> Well, it's up. funny what you said that you know that that you know about uh, about Jeff Goldblum's character because you're right. I found him like super annoying and kind of useless. Useless. Yep. In Jurassic Park, and it's funny because then they turn around and he's the the hero. He's the main character in the sequel, and strangely, it worked. Yeah, at least it for sure me, does. it really worked well for me. I I thought he was engaging. I thought he was entertaining. And, you know, I, I came to actually care about, you know, him and his girlfriend and even his goofy daughter. Yep. And I thought the whole movie worked a hell of a lot better than, than Jurassic Park. The, just Jurassic Park just somehow just didn't click with me like it did with other people. But, uh, you know, I, I, I know that I'm in the minority on that one because I remember I was working when, when the movie came out on video and Laserdisc for... <laughs> Anybody that remembers, remembers laser, yeah. I was working for uh, for Media Play at the time, and I, I don't know if you guys have Media Play up there where you are, but I don't think so. But we have tape, play, some equivalent. 
they were they were Best Buy's big rivals, uh-huh. you know, back then before Best Buy Best Buy eventually bought them out. But they were Best Buy's big rivals, but they were they were a much nicer type of type of atmosphere, you know, it was a, it was more of an upscale media center where you went in and you could buy movies and books and videos and all this stuff. Well, anyway, we had these monitors all over the store, and we had a giant screen in the video department. It was one of these ones that was made up of nine screens that make yeah. like one giant screen. So that was in the video department. And then scattered throughout the rest of the entire store were video monitors. And so the night the movie came out on on disc, on, on a laser disc, you know, the DVDs hadn't come along yet. We had a killer sound system in the store. I mean, we had a, a really nice subwoofer, killer sound system through the whole thing. So when it got to the part of the movie where, you know, the, the T-Rex has broken through, you know, its area and, it, and it's coming to where the kids are. You know, there's all the deep growling and everything. You know, before yeah. all this starts, I kicked the video feed over to where suddenly the movie was on every monitor in the store i turned off the sound for the music department and for the for the electronics department so suddenly the entire store was jurassic park you know it was on all the monitors and and the sound was just booming through everywhere and i'm telling you man the entire store just stopped. I mean, everybody who was shopping, everybody who was doing anything at all, just suddenly everyone in that store was watching that movie. And I've let it play through that entire sequence until uh, the car, you know, the car fell off the side. And then I kicked it back over to where it was only in the video department and put everything else back the way it was. We had like a record sales week, right? That, you know, out of that one night, because like everybody had to have that movie. And we're just coming over and just buying it by the armload. That's you know, hilarious. Just, it was Should great. Got I mean, a raise it, after that. I got so screwed by that company, but, <laughs> but yeah, it was it was great. And that that was my best Jurassic Park memory was was actually when it came out on video, just doing that whole thing. But uh, yeah, you wanted to touch on the on the sequel. Yeah, uh, well, you know, we were sort of talking about it, so we might as well. Yeah. You know, uh, the the one the, the the only thing that I didn't like about the sequel was the one scene where Jeff Goldblum's daughter does her gymnastics routine yes. and kicks a dinosaur. That was just too cheesy Spielbergy, and and when she kicked it, it, it was sort of a rub- it had that rubber dinosaur look to it. But I don't. Other really, than that, I really liked that movie. I thought it was more pure chaos in the first movie. It was yes. just pure chase, chomp, and and fight. You know, it had a lot more bite. Yeah, <laughs> intended than than the first one did. You know, I, I felt like it was more of a more of a, a, a scarier Spielberg. You know, he was getting sure. back to his Jaws roots with this one. There were a lot more. You know thrills and chills there was there was a lot more just intensity and the first one didn't have that you know it it kept surprising me how people kept saying you know they didn't want their kids to see it and it was so scary and it was so violent and 
I mean, to my uh, recollection, only one person ever gets killed in that movie that you actually see. You know, the, the lawyer guy gets bitten when he's sitting on the toilet. But other than that, who yeah. do you see actually get killed in that movie? You just it happens off screen. The the um the big fat guy who played Newman on yeah. Seinfeld, but it's all sort of off screen, you know, you just see the car shaking, you know. Yeah. It was it I mean that movie was the first movie just had a lot of gee whiz look how beautiful our dinosaurs look, you know, and establishing shots of people going, Oh my god, look, it's real dinosaurs, you know. Right. So the second movie, we already we already have established the whole dinosaurs are cool. Yeah, by the second movie, we'd established you know what the dinosaurs looked like and what they could do. So the the second movie was all just pitting them against, adding a few little twists like the baby dinosaur, which you know that was a good that was a good mm -hmm. story element. You know the the mother T Rex coming after her baby. And uh, you know all the 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 whole crew of bounty hunter type, you know, wild game hunters who go after the dinosaurs is great. That's handled really yeah, well. Like it's that. a really cool element to it, and it gives the dinosaurs a lot of people to chomp on. Well, you know, this that movie, the sequel, to me, it, it works on that human level, you know, on the character level, whereas the first one didn't. Because, you know, one of the things that annoyed me with the first one was it had a lot of story, it had a lot of setup, and I didn't want it with that one. It's funny how it really works with the second one, but to me it doesn't work with the first one because I didn't care about any of those people, you know? I mean, it, yeah. that first movie could have very well started out you know, like 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 an old 30s, 40s monster movie where you got, you got some guy that just walks out and says, ladies and gentlemen... You're about to see a bunch of assholes get eaten by dinosaurs. And I would have been cool with yeah. that. I would have been totally fine with that. I didn't need an hour of that movie wasted by setting up stories for all these people that I really didn't give a shit about and would have loved to have seen getting eaten. That you know? should have been so much dinosaur chow. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, and the second one surprises me that so many of the characters I actually did like. You know, I, I like the, the big game hunter guy, he was cool. You know, I like Jeff Goldblum. I liked his girlfriend. I, I didn't like his daughter. She could have got chomped. <laughs> and then, you know, there was there was the guy from, uh, you know, that would eventually be on West Wing. You know, he was the, the, the goofy communications guy oh, or whatever. Right. I mean, he gets eaten in a vicious way. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, they tear him apart, you know. But, yeah, I, I like the second one a hell of a lot better. And, and I didn't really think of it until just this moment, but. I guess this plays into, you know, historically speaking, I usually tend to like the second movie of, of movie series better anyway, you know, especially when they're trilogies. Yeah. You know, because like, like the original Star Wars movies, the Spider-Man movies, um, the Lord of the Rings movies, I, I like all the middle chapters better of all of those. I guess Indiana, you know, the original Indiana Jones trilogy is about the only one where I don't like the, the second movie better. That's true. Or the the second Star Wars trilogy. But the, no, actually, I, yeah, I like the, the second one, one I, of that one. The, the later one, I mean, you know, the the prequel trilogy. Yeah. I actually like the second one of that one the best out of all of them huh. too. Oh, that's a topic for another. Well, are we are <laughs> we ready to? Speaking of another topic, are we ready to move on? Oh, oh. 
Gosh, yes, I guess so. To the next Do we section. need to take a break? We could. Oh, we better take a break before this one, man. That's okay. <laughs> Yeah, we, we have a rant about to happen. All right, we'll be right back. Please proceed on to part three of our Spielberg retrospective. <laughs> 